All right, it is time to get started. Today we're going to focus on Satan and the power of darkness, powers of darkness. And mostly what we're going to do is define terms, differentiate how those terms are used, and also talk about how those, the usage of those terms changes throughout the history of the Bible. And I think what you'll find is that we come away with some really interesting conclusions just from that amount of information. There's going to be another entire class that Philip is going to teach on Wednesday about Satan, so we'll spend a lot of time talking about that personality today, uh, but in the scope of things, of course, his, his name will come up. Um, so as we get started, let's begin with a prayer and then we'll launch into it. Okay, so you have five documents. Um, the first one is a distillation of the information in the second one. That second one has got a major thud factor, okay? Big, it burns a long time, okay? Um, and the reason it's so big is because what I've done here in this document, if, if you'll notice, just flip over the first page, you'll see devil. And every passage in the entire Bible that mentions devil, okay? And then we'll do the same thing for Satan. And we do the same thing for all of these other terms that reference in one way or another the powers of darkness. Then I went through and distilled information that I found in here. Okay, so I'm doing some discovery here. We're going through all these documents and distilling information about these different entities and how they show up and where they show up. And that's what's here. That will be the first part of our class today. Okay, we'll be talking about what's in this smaller distillation. And you don't even need to read it right now. I've got, I've got it in writing for you, to, in narrative form for you to take home with you. But this is basically the most of the class today, the first, at least the first half. The next thing you have are a series of charts. And we're going to go through those one by one in class. So you can just hold on to those and use them later. And then a couple of summary documents we have here, a document about exorcism uh, that will make a nice historical perspective for us, and then finally, Satan, and you can just peruse that before our class on Wednesday night so you'll be ready for Philip's class. And then you'll have a broad sense of how the Bible uses the name of Satan and what it's supposed to to bring up in our minds when we see his name. Okay, so we're starting with that distilled document, the very first couple of pages, and you can read that if you want to, or you can just hold on to it until you get home, because we're about to go through the same material here. All right, so this is a distillation of the big document down to the small document called Forces of Evil, a Synopsis. And first we'll just talk about Satan. He is the same as the devil. There are devils, but Satan is the devil. And in fact, Satan, the word itself, as you know, means what? Accuser. accuser. That's right. Satan is the accuser. That's his chief function in life, is to make you feel guilty, to accuse you of all the things that you've done, and um, 
sort of take your mind off the fact that if you're a Christian, take your mind off the fact that uh, that you have a, a propitiation from your sins. Um, so the word devil, and Satan is, is an Old Testament word, but it's brought forward into the New Testament. It's a Hebrew word that means accuser. Devil is sort of the Greek equivalent of Satan. So diabolos is the Greek word that means the same thing, and when Satan is translated in the Greek Old Testament, it's translated to diabolos. So basically equivalent terms in two different languages. He's also the serpent that appears in Genesis chapter 3. And if we didn't know that already, just by the reading, we would find that out when we got to Revelation in chapter 20 and verse 2. He makes an equivalency between the devil, Satan, and serpent. And also the dragon that appears in the book of Revelation in chapters 19 and 20. So that... They're hard, the things in Revelation that are hard to nail down, this is an easy one, because he actually tells us who this dragon is. And those are make nice uh, sort of tent pegs that you can build everything else around when you find something certain in Revelation that way. Okay? In the Old Testament, Satan is mentioned in three places, but mainly in two places. Um, Genesis chapter 3, Satan is mentioned several times. And in Job, he's mentioned several times in the early chapters. And then not mentioned again through the rest of the book. I want you to notice, and this is, this is kind of an aha moment, how little Satan or the devil or the serpent is mentioned in the Old Testament. We'll see that again when we, look, when we go to our charts. How much did the people under the Old Testament even know about this serpent that was introduced to them in Genesis chapter 3? If you hold, like I do, that Job was one of the earlier books, or at least references an early time in Jewish history, or early time in history, whether or not he's Jewish, we're not sure. Uh, but if you believe, like I do, that this references a very early time in history, then Genesis and Job, two of the earliest books, are Two of the earliest narratives are the only ones that talk appreciably about Satan, the serpent. But in the New Testament, the idea is pervasive. 19 out of the 27 books in the New Testament have some kind of a reference to Satan. And he is the topic of Wednesday's class, so we're going to just leave it at that for, for the moment. Here's another term that comes up in the scriptures. There are two terms. There is Baalzebub, and there is Beelzebul. And it does appear that those two terms are related, and in fact they are, but they're related in sort of a weird historical way. Beelzebub is the Old Testament term um, for the, in, for the uh, Philistine god of Ekron. It's the only way he's mentioned. But in the New Testament, by Jesus' day, this term, Beelzebub, had morphed into a term for the, a prince of the demons. Some people believe he was Satan. <clears throat> Some people believe that he was another uh, demon. Um, some believe that he was second in rank to Satan. 
Um, and in demonology, which believe it or not is an entire discipline, <laughs> and one of the reasons that we're staying so close to scripture in this treatment, because you can get way off into the weeds when you start studying demonology from the very earliest of times. I mean, like from the second century, the literature just exploded about demonology, and there are all these different references to demons, and this hierarchy was created of different demons that have different functions, and it was all created out of the imagination of people, as far as I can tell. But here's one that's actually mentioned in the scriptures, and we don't know exactly what role he plays. We just know that he was referred to as the Prince of Demons in New Testament times. Okay? Then we have the word demon. These are considered to be lesser deities, and I use the word deities very deliberately here, and you'll understand why in just a couple minutes. Lesser deities associated with idols in the Old Testament and in some of the writings of Paul, who was the expert on the Old Testament. And also one reference in the book of Revelation to idols connected with demons. <clears throat> What's that connection about? What's the connection between idols and demons? You remember when Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper, he talks about you can't partake of the Supper of the Lord, um, <clears throat> have fellowship with the table of the Lord, and simultaneously with the table of demons. And he's talking about the pagans and their idol worship. Okay? Um, another use of demon is a spiritual being who inhabited humans during the time of Christ. And this, is, this use of the word is used exclusively in the Gospels. Everywhere else the word demon comes up. It's one of these other usage, usages like association with another deity or as we'll see a spiritual being in the spiritual realm not occupying human flesh. Or in one case, the flesh of pigs for a brief, for a brief moment. Okay, so these are the three usages of the term demon. One is deities associated with idols. Two, spiritual beings who inhabited humans in the Gospels in the time of Christ. Or three, spiritual beings in the spiritual realm not occupying humans. Those are the three uses broadly across Scripture. And I think that itself gives us some clarification about the locations and operation of spirits at different times and in different places. We've talked about spiritual beings in the heavenly places already, haven't we? So that third usage we've talked about. We're going to talk more about spiritual beings inhabiting humans at the time of Christ and these beings associated with idols. So. Now, unclean and evil spirits. Are they appreciably different than devils, uh, or than demons? I don't know. Um, it's a different term that's applied under slightly different circumstances. Um, they seem to have the same function. They seem to occupy human flesh. Uh, there are only a few usages anywhere in the New Testament. They occur only during the time of the apostles. I, my uh, suspicion is that they're one and the same with demons. 
just a different term applied to the same entity. Almost exclusive to the synoptic gospels, and I say almost because there are these three distinct instances in the book of Acts. Acts chapters five and nine, these demons had encounters with, these unclean or evil spirits had encounters with the apostles. They're used four times in chapter 19, all regarding the sons of Siva, and, or Sceva, however you like to pronounce that, and um, they, as far as we know, had no contact with the <coughs> apostles in that reference. Um, but they, they whooped up on the sons of Sceva and sent them away beaten and naked when they presumed to invoke the name of Paul and Jesus in casting them out. Then we have what are referred to, and I've come up with a summary term for what we see in several places, these spiritual forces of darkness. They're referred to in the writings of Paul as principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 6, verse 12. They're also in, also in Paul's writings, Romans chapter 8. Um, the words angels and rulers come up. Um, and this word rulers is the same as principalities as translated elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 1. And what version of the Bible you read from, principalities and powers may be translated somewhat differently. Maybe authorities, for example, authorities and rulers. Authorities and rulers, though, suggests that these, these uh, entities have some some spiritual power, don't they? That they have some spiritual authority that has been granted to them by someone. Whether that authority comes from God or whether it comes from within their own hierarchy, don't know the answer to all those kinds of questions. We just know that these rulers and authorities exist in heavenly places and that they have some impact on us. In Jude chapter 8, or Jude verse 8, I sorry, sorry, Jude only has one chapter, so Jude verse 8, um, he references glorious ones, or dignitaries, depending on how, what translation you read from, at least some of whom are evil. <coughs> These all seem to me to be referencing the same kind of being in the same realm, that is the spiritual realm, where we have a presence, we sit with Christ in the heavenly places, and these spiritual authorities are in the heavenly places. So just reminding you of things we've talked about already with reference to ourselves and our spirits. All right, then we have also in the Bible references to the devil and his angels. Now, look at how many different terms there are for these different forces of evil and that explains a little bit why that uh, long document I gave you is so long, because there are so many different terms used in so many different places, and they involve so many different references to, different, to these different beings. Okay, so the devil and his angels, in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, these, the devil and his angels is mentioned in a futuristic sense. It didn't cease to exist when Jesus went back to heaven. In Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, he mentions evil dignitaries in the spiritual realm. And in Jude 6, angels who left their first estate. 
Now that's a teaser, isn't it? Makes you want to know more about that study, that uh, that statement. Angels who left their first estate. And so this is part of where some of the mythology comes from, right? Um, we get a teaser passage like this somewhere in the scripture and people build a, an entire scenario around it. They, they try to tell a story from the very little information that we have. And those stories, some of them are passed down through the generations and some of them come to us. So many of the things that we hear about the devil um, Lucifer, let's see, was that really the devil or is it somebody else? Um, you see, a lot of these, these stories that get passed down through the ages come to us and it causes a lot of confusion. Again, my reason for sticking so close to scripture and all this and not creating some kind of a, of a mythology of my own from up here. Angels who left their first estate. And in Revelation 12, 9, you have this Angels being thrown down to earth to make war against God's people. And you always have the Revelation question mark in the back of your mind every time you see a Revelation reference because you know Revelation is such a wild book. It has such vivid imagery that's all spiritual imagery and much of it not literal. So then the question comes, well, okay, thrown down to earth. What's he talking about in that passage? And we're not going to get into the into Revelation too deeply in this class for obvious reasons. We'd just get so bogged down we wouldn't move anywhere. It is interesting to see the different visions and appearances of the devil and the devil and angels uh, throughout the book of Revelation. It makes an interesting study by itself. All right, now we're going to pull out those charts and talk about the distributions and usages of these different words. And again, I think they're I say this because I learned some things by going through this, and I'd just like to pass along to you what I've learned. And to do that, I'm going to pull up a different app. drivers and such, but hard to do. Okay, but I hope you all can see that, and if you can't, you've got it in your packet. Here are the usage, usages of the devil, Satan, and the serpent. Let's just take a look at this for a minute so you understand what I'm trying to do here. Okay, the devil is this symbol on this chart. Satan is a solid star, and the serpent is an empty star. The colors, red and black, are only in there so you can tell what column you're looking at because each column is a book of the Bible, all right? So here you have the book of Genesis, for example, and you have five occurrences of the word, the, of the phrase, the serpent, in the, in the book of Genesis, and it happens that all, of, all five of those are in chapter three, okay? You don't see any of these terms again until First Chronicles, Satan is mentioned, 
And it's a passing reference. You get a sense that the Jews knew something about Satan. <laughs> Otherwise, why would the name be mentioned out of the blue like that? But we have no idea what they know about him because there's nothing from Genesis to 1 Chronicles anywhere about Satan. Isn't that fascinating? Yes? Is there a difference between like a totally filled in red star versus a black filled in star? Well, again, the red has only to do with the columns so that you can tell one column from the next one. I tried doing all of these in one color and you couldn't look and tell what book you were looking at. So by having black, red, black, <coughs> red, you can tell whether it's Matthew or Mark. Um, so the empty ones are Satan, and the filled ones are, are the serpent. The filled ones are Satan, but black and red are, they make no difference in terms of whether, uh, of which entity we're talking about. Do you guys follow? I know it can, be, it can be a little confusing, but actually it would be more confusing if they were all black. Okay. Then here you have the book of Job. Look how many references to Satan are in the book of Job. In fact, I've got the counts here. You've got them. You've got them on your copy. Okay. So eleven references to Satan in the book of Job, and then not again until you get to Zechariah, where there are two references. Five, six, seventeen, nineteen references total in the entire Old Testament to Satan, the devil, or the serpent, and only in four books. And in those books, only in a total of one, two, three, four chapters. You didn't do all of this stuff just from last week, did you? <laughs> I did all this stuff in 2018, the first time I taught this class. <laughs> But, but I, I tell you, this, is, this, this was fun to me, so when I started doing it, I just got completely immersed. And this is what I did for a living for many years, so um, it, it wasn't maybe as, as challenging as, as you might think. Um, so here, then... <coughs> Oh, what I, the other thing I want you to notice is, is how pervasive, once you get to, to Matthew, you, you begin to see the devil and Satan and Satan and devil and Satan and the devil and the devil and Satan. And the serpent is mentioned again, once again, in 2 Corinthians. But most, most of what you have throughout the entire New Testament is the devil and Satan. Revelation also mentions the serpent, the, the old serpent, the devil. Yeah. Isaac. Interesting point of order about the an occurrence that you may not have there for the Gospels. When Jesus calls the Pharisees brood of vipers, what I, okay. my understanding is that the word he uses is nahash, which is Hebrew for serpent, which I believe is the word that is used in Genesis. The connotation is kind of uh, an adversary of God. Okay. And so he is, when he says, and I believe he says in a, in a different place, he calls them like you are sons of your father. He's literally calling them descendants of the devil, okay. is my understanding. All right. Well, that's, you know, that's, I hadn't thought about that, that phrase, the brood of vipers, in that light before, but I, I suspect you're right about that. I mean, they would have taken it, 
that they, they would have immediately connected it with, with uh, and it is the same word, they would have connected it with, uh, with Satan from Genesis 3. There is an interesting book for anyone that wants to dive deeper, specifically into, like, especially the language, uh, The Unseen Realm by, by Dr. Michael Heiser. He looks at like the original Hebrew and then the Greek of the New Testament and just trying to see, you know, what did, what did the original authors say? Let's just look at you know, what they seemed to have known. He delves a lot into the concept of Elohim, the divine council. It's, it's a fascinating read. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Okay, great. Thank you for that. All right. And those are the kinds of little summary books that, you know, if they're linguistically based and biblically based, that really I find really valuable. All right, so I'm going to make this go away. And I'm going to bring up usages of the word demon. All right. Again, very few instances in the Old Testament. One, two, three. references in the four Gospels. Most of them in the synoptics. And then these out here in, in the tales in the Old Testament and later in the New Testament. I find that instructive by itself. Demons have vastly more mention in those four books referencing the same time period, the same narrow time period in the New Testament than in all the rest of the Bible put together, earlier and later. You'll also find even, well, at least equally helpful, is the way that the, that the term demon is used in the different places. These are the Old Testament references, and I've actually typed them out so that you can see, verse by verse, how they're referenced. Now look at this. This is what I was telling you before about references to lower deities that, have, that are somehow connected with idols. Leviticus 17.7, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This will be a statute forever throughout their generations. Deuteronomy 32.17, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Psalm 106, verse 37. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to <coughs> demons. Who are they sacrificing them to? Molech. The other idol gods that required human sacrifice. Okay? So idols here are actually gods masquerading as these images or hiding behind these images. When you worship an image... You're actually worshiping another god, a lower, low, lowercase g god, that's hiding behind that image, according to the scripture, and used consistently that way throughout the Old Testament. There's also a Pauline reference from the New Testament that I'm going to add in here. 
Okay, here's from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, where we were talking about a minute ago. I said it mentioned about the Lord's Supper. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So pagans, idol worshipers, when they make sacrifices, they're not just offering sacrifices to nothing. They're offering sacrifices to these little g gods who are masquerading as the shape of animals and what have you. Paul references those the same way the Old Testament does. Revelation chapter 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor to give up the worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze. So again, associated with idols. <coughs> and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Now, interestingly, Paul though makes one reference to covetousness, remember this, which is also idolatry. So when you're covetous, you're worshiping another god that's actually a demon. Covetousness is a sinful practice, and when you worship stuff, when you hold stuff to be above God, then you're worshiping an idol, and you are in fact worshiping a demon. <coughs> Isaac? I don't know if this translates into the New Testament, but Another point that Heiser brings up is anytime you see the word demon in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is shagim, which carries this connotation of a, like a territorial guardian. In other words, a spirit that is tasked with watching over a specific geographic location. And he ties it back to the Tower of Babel. When God separates the nations, he, he theorizes that God gave the peoples over to these territorial beings who then tried to essentially usurp God's authority. They didn't direct their people to worshiping Yahweh. They put themselves up as the kind of the end-all, be-all, which is why you get these wars of our gods are stronger than your gods. Mm -hmm. And the, the peoples, the idols that they made would... One of the purposes was to give their God kind of a physical foothold in our material reality. Okay, so very often when you read the Old Testament and you read about the gods and people going to battle for the gods, there were the gods of the high places and the gods of the valleys. There was this, I mentioned a few minutes ago, this Philistine god of Ekron. That was a local god. And they thought that if they could take their God with them into battle somewhere else, he might protect them. But if they were fighting on the mountain, he was a God of the valley, it wouldn't work, right? Okay, so there is that kind of local rivalry, almost like a local mascot that people fight for. But these are actually gods masquerading in, as, as idols, okay? So here are references to demons who are not occupying flesh. The second sense that I mentioned. Now the Spirit says expressly that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. He's, I think he's talking about idol gods here. He's talking about these spiritual forces in the heavenly places that we talked about. James chapter 2 verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James 13, uh, chapter 3 verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly unspiritual and demonic. He's talking about 
the, the uh, thought processes that bring about uh, envy and strife and, and uh, faction and, and malignity, those kinds of things, those are the things that, those are, that's the wisdom that comes from the spiritual realm of the demons and from the earthy spirit that's also at times connected with Satan. Alright, so that we have idols, we have idols, we have idols, oh, not idols, no, we have two cases where idols are mentioned in Revelation that I'll show you in a second, and then we have these two instances that are spiritual forces that are not occupying humans. <coughs> that go away. Pull up these two passages in Revelation. They are demonic spirit, spirit, spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of, of God the Almighty. Is that an idol, or is that a spiritual force in the heavenly places, or is that demons occupying human beings? hard to tell whether it's in the form of human uh, human form or not, but probably more talking about the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Revelation 18.2, he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, usually re references Rome. Um, Babylon is a uh, reference to Rome in some of the Old Testament prophets and also in Revelation. Fallen is Babylon the Great. She's become the dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Okay. So I'm going to just pass over that quickly and say that's probably, again, these spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And in Revelation, they have so settled over Rome that uh, doom is... is uh, imminent. Now we're going to go to, let's take a look at unclean spirits. Okay, so the empty circles are unclean spirits, the filled ones are evil spirits. And look where they show up again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. One case in 1 Timothy, two cases in James, three cases in Revelation, and a few occurrences here back in the Old Testament. of evil spirit are in Acts chapter 19 regarding the seven sons.
talking, and now we're talking, we're bringing up angels of unrighteousness and the rule and authority that Paul talks about. Right, again, the vast majority of the occurrences are here, um, but the rule and authority is really um, So this is the one that I said was spoken of in Matthew in a futuristic sense. We have angels of unrighteousness, angels of unrighteousness, angels of unrighteousness, and these references in Romans, all in the writings of Paul about rule and authority. All right, so that's mainly, this idea of rule and authority is mainly a Pauline concept associated with the writings of Paul, and these angels of righteousness appear both in the writings of Paul and of Jude and occur in Revelation, in addition to one statement from Jesus. All right. So what do you make of all this? observations too. <laughs> and you're not going to remember it in one class period, are you? We're not going to get a chance to talk about exorcism much. But I'll just say this, that exorcism rises and falls with demons. Where do you expect to find exorcisms? The Gospels. A few cases in the book of Acts. But exorcisms tail into the early Christian literature. In the first century, you get, and second century, you get writings from people like Irenaeus, who talk about Christians being able to speak the word in the name of Jesus and demons going away, where other people were unable to perform those functions. And you have, even have one example of a historian by the name of Celsus, who was against Christianity and he had to come up with some explanations for why Christians could cast out demons and nobody else could. So he said, Celsus said, Christians cast out demons by incantations and by demons. And Origen comes back later and quotes him in his writings and says, no, it's not because of incantations and demons, it's because the name of Christ is used. So we have independent verification from outside Christianity of demons being cast out by Christians and trying to figure out how to deal with that. All right. So the point that I wanted to make from all this is the, the appearance of demons in human form are connected specifically with the appearance of Christ in the flesh. Why do you suppose? I know class is technically over, but I think this is kind of important. <clears throat> 
why do you suppose demons in the flesh are so closely connected to Christ in the flesh? Where do warriors go? They go where the fight is. And when Jesus was in the flesh, the flesh is where the fight was. But when Jesus defeated the demons in the flesh and then arose in the spirit to be with the Father, and we are raised to be with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, where's the fight? In the heavenly places, and that's where you find the demons, right? And we still have our idols, and they're still associated with demons. So that's the strongest argument I can think of for why we should give up our idols, the things that we have greater allegiance to than we have to Christ. Because when we are allegiant to something else other than Christ, we're setting up a demon above God. Things to ponder. <laughs> Thank you.